Hey guys, real quick before we get started, we are doing a free giveaway for listeners between now and May 31st. Cash prizes, free swag, Yacht Meetup tickets, San Diego Padre tickets, and more. All you got to do to qualify is go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and drop a five-star review. Send a screenshot to giveaway at summerscapital.com and we'll be selecting lucky winners May 31st. As always, I appreciate the support. Now let's jump into the show. And one of the things that's putting a big smile on my face and getting me excited is developing these beautiful properties mm-hmm. in markets that I love. And owning good and, dirt. And owning good dirt yeah. in places that I love, I know, and I feel proud to own it. And that's what gets my blood pumping. So I've found a strategy that like I'm excited about. Like I, I, when I find a property, I'm amped. It, it wakes me up. It's like, you know, so I, I think that you might even need to bounce around and try a couple of different things in real estate to find that. But once you find it, I think you know you're on the right path. Welcome to the Rich Summers Report, where we talk real estate, business, and wealth building, all while keeping it real. No fluff, no BS. I hope that you enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of The Report. Today, we are back in the studio and a couple days removed from a big, heavy rainstorm down here in San Diego. I believe we had like more rain in that morning than we typically get over like a two or three month span during a, a normal winter, but super excited. And I got, actually, we had the podcast uh, studio flood out too, a lot of these buildings, but uh, super excited today. I got a, a very special guest. I got someone who is a good friend of mine, uh, someone who actually met in a break room at my old uh, employer, Ear Traffic Control Facility. We both cash out our 401ks together, and now he owns more than $50 million of real estate. I got the co-founder, of Takeoff Capital. I got my man, Sean D. Martell. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Rich, man. It's been a long time coming, brother. Yeah, man. Uh, dude, it's it's freaking, it's great to have you on, man. It's been a, it's been a bit, but uh, dude, we have a unique story, man. We've met in a freaking break room working a government job and we just started like riffing on real estate investing. And at that time, it was just like a pipe dream. I mean, think about it. It's kind of crazy. I mean, that was only like, what, five years ago? Mm-hmm. Something like that? Yeah, it was it was like early 2019. Yeah, yeah. So four or five years ago, and look at us now. Like it, it shows you how quickly things can move when you really like go all in on something. Mm-hmm. But it is kind of crazy to think that that like you know four or five years ago we were in a break room working W two jobs with no portfolio, and now yeah, dude. Uh, so I think looking back, so I'm trying to think here. So I know I, I overheard Mike, who it was our third partner. He's not here with us right now, but. Uh, I will be getting Mike on the show here shortly, but uh, Mike, I overheard him talking about buying a floorplex in Cleveland. And I was like in the break room in between work and traffic. And I was like, dude, that is the coolest thing ever. I'm like, how did you do that? And I think shortly after, like you started coming in the break room and you were like really like binge watching and listening to Bigger Pockets podcast yep. at the time. And uh, I remember you started like jumping in on conversations and we just started like riffing on deals together, the three of us. Mm-hmm. And some some way or another, I was like, dude, like it would be cool if like we just put our money together and partnered on a deal. And that was the 32 units in, in uh, Indianapolis that we bought. Exactly right. Yeah, because I even remember there was a point where you were because like Mike was getting that fourplex and you were even looking in Louisville, Kentucky. Remember, you yes. almost got like that six, five. Was it five, five or six? Units? Yeah, five yep. plex. And uh, then that didn't really, uh, you know, that kind of fell through. I, I think you had there were some issues with I the property the or something. Yeah. Yep. And then, um, yeah, you were the one that was like, dude, why don't we just combine our money and like go all in on this? And I remember I was just being like, oh, yeah, let's do that. And uh, it seemed crazy at the time. But, yeah, we got that 32 unit Breeza 32, which happens to be we named it after this building. Yeah. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we did. Didn't we? <laughs> this, yeah, we did. Yeah. We did. I was living here in a one bedroom condo. Yeah, and yeah. This 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 condo uh, complex where our office is located is called Breeza. And so, oh, Breeza 32. 
it went with it. But dude, I think before that we had like a 40 unit deal under contract in, uh, in Oklahoma city, which we canceled. Oh, thank Remember God that? we did, man. <laughs> thank God we did because who knows where we'd be if we would have gotten ourselves into that one. That could have been the first and the last deal we ever did. It, I think so. And I think more probably the last because that, because it, but we were at least smart enough to say, ah, well, let's yeah. not maybe do this one. I mean, Breeze ended up, uh, what, what was Breeze it called before we renamed it? Uh, start with a V, right? Vicksburg, Vicksburg Apartments. Apartments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So as you can see, it was a really bad name and it needed to be changed. Dude, so so much to jump into, man. But, um, you know, why don't you just give us like a overview of like kind of what you're doing today? So today, Mike and I, we've pivoted to focusing on San Diego, basically San Diego development. Um, obviously, we've got our portfolio that you're involved with and everything as well with the value add multifamily. Mm-hmm. It was getting harder and harder for deals to pencil. And we weren't really seeing as much opportunity in that space, in our opinion. Uh, We really wanted to be able to focus in San Diego, grow our business here, dig our roots in here. And we learned about uh, two strategies, bonus ADU strategy, complete community strategy, essentially just use it, buying single family homes that are on multifamily lots and, and building new apartments instead. So now we're focusing heavily on that. We got like two projects underway. Uh, with, uh, you know, one of them is going to be 30 to 40 units. The other one's 10 units. And we're going to continue doing this, you know, focusing in San Diego on new apartment development. And there's a lot of reasons why, but I guess I'll just sum it up there. But um, yeah, we've completely pivoted more towards development now here. Dude, I, I love what you guys are doing with the ADU play. Like I say it all the time on social media and on this podcast. I'm like, my two favorite real estate plays out there right now are buying boutique hotels from mom and pop owners and developing ADUs in expensive neighborhoods. Uh, especially here in San Diego. I'm very bullish on this neighborhood. You guys live here, but you know, it's really like an island, right? So, you know, to the north, you got Camp Pendleton, to the west, we got the Pacific Ocean, to the south, we got uh, the Mexican border, and to the east, you got mountain ranges. And so, from a supply standpoint, there's not a lot of land to build on. And so, I think now the cat's out of the bag. Uh, people are discovering, hey, out of the four major markets in California, uh, you got Bay Area, Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego. San Diego is by far the cheapest cost of living, but you could argue it has the best beaches, the best vibe, the best overall just persona. Like I love living here, right? And so the cats of the bag, we're seeing tech companies migrate down here. People with money are coming in. We got to get a strong Navy presence, as you and Mike both know. Uh, so I'm very bullish on the ADU play, and I'm even more bullish on San Diego because of it. I agree. And like to provide even more context for the listeners, San Diego, uh, in their annual report on housing that they released uh, this past November, uh, shared that yet again, they barely built above 5,000 new housing units. And that includes single family homes and multifamily. So for the year, uh, and that's for the year of 2022. So they're always a year behind. So in 2022, they built, I think, like 5,100 new housing units. By the way, ADUs were 19% of that number. So compare that with, okay, let's compare that with a city like Dallas that's completely flat and they can basically build out infinitely. They mm-hmm. built 55,000 units. Wow. So literally 10X or, uh, and a little more. Um, so, you know, you're going to read, a lot of the listeners might read on, you know, whether it's CoStar, you know, Bloomberg, the news, that there's a lot of new supply coming on, especially in the Sunbelt markets. But in a place like San Diego, they just can't do that. And these neighborhoods where we're building, you know, these, especially these really sought after beach communities, there's literally zero new supply that's been put online within the past couple of years outside of ADUs. So unless you're going to do one of these business models, there simply is just no other new supply. And that's where people want to live. So I think the economics makes sense. The entire thesis, uh, I think, is rock solid. And what I love about it is that because it is so hard to build here and that these lots are so limited, you don't really have to worry about there being too much supply coming online. Yeah. 
Dude, I know. It's funny because I hear people from out of state all the time and they never, you know, lived in California. They never invested here. Uh, but they always are, are quick to jump on and say, oh, I'll never invest there, landlord-tenant laws and, you know, all this stuff and barriers to entry. But I'm like, yo, like the barriers to entry, the bureaucracy, the red tape uh, that comes with, you know, investing in some of these liberal areas, it's actually a good thing as a real estate investor because I agree. it doesn't create all this additional supply and additional competition. You don't have the risk of oversaturation uh, which you do see in some of these markets that you just alluded to, like Dallas and like Phoenix uh, and some of these areas to where there's a lot of land to build on. There's not a lot of bureaucracy. And so from a permitting perspective, uh, it's easy to build. So here it's almost like you're protecting your investment, but also rents are going to increase quicker because of it, but also appreciation yep. long term. A hundred percent. And like regarding like those landlord tenant laws down here, like a lot of out-of-staters, like you alluded to, are really fearful of Southern California, like, oh, I can't believe you're investing there. I would never invest there. You know, the bigger pockets guys say not to invest there. Well, regarding those landlord tenant laws, I would agree in certain instances. For example, if you're going to be in a more of a blue collar, affordable housing neighborhood, there is substantially more risk because those tenants are the most likely to have bad debt, the most likely to default on their rent. We're not targeting those neighborhoods. We're targeting neighborhoods where the median household income is $100,000 or more in most cases. Mm -hmm. These are people that your average tenant easily makes three times the monthly rent, uh, usually has a really good job, doctors, nurses, uh, and the like, to where the probability of them defaulting is so much lower. I think the bad debt average in the coastal communities is 1% or less. Um, So that is much less of a risk. I would agree that if you're going to do a value-add multifamily play in Southern California, it's a little more risky because if you want to renovate the units, it's a lot harder to get the tenant out. It's yeah. a lot harder to underwrite. Okay, we're going to assume we're, we're going to renovate two units a month. Well, what if that person doesn't want to leave? And yeah. plus, there's a lot of protections. And the third thing I'll mention about that is that some of these projects, like, we're filling the tenants ourselves. We're not going to inherit mm. bad tenants that, you know, might not have been our standard of qualification. They're vetted out. They're vetted out. And then if you use the Complete Communities program, those units uh, the new units do not have the statewide rent control, which is 5% plus the consumer price index uh, for how much you can raise rent year over year. That doesn't apply for 10 years. And what, what determines if you qualify for that? So basically, it has to be a new construction project. All right. Okay. ADU projects don't qualify because they essentially base that off of the, the single family home that exists on the house. Okay. So like if that home was built in the 1950s, they're going to base it off of that date, essentially. Complete communities is different. Um, you're tearing down the homes, you're building an apartment complex, and it's specifically designed for apartment complexes, essentially. But uh, new developments, you know, Simone, Luma, mm. these kind of places, they don't, those rent control laws do not apply to them for wow for years after they build. Yeah. It's interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. I, I hear people say it all the time. And I'm like, the folks that, you know, uh, dog investing in California have never actually owned real estate in California. But you know, if you study rents uh, in California, you study the long-term appreciation, Yep, you'll look quickly learn like good neighborhoods, good dirt, good real estate in these areas of Southern California. You know, it doubles every 12 to 15 years like exactly. clockwork. You know, go invest in Cincinnati. I, I, I own a couple of properties on Cincinnati and yeah, it's, it's great cash flow. But dude, that real estate out there, it might double every 25, 30 years. Here it's doubling every 12 to 15, like clockwork. Exactly. I agree. And I think that it, it depends on individual preference and what the needs of your portfolio. Like if you absolutely need cash flow, and I think it's important to have cash flow in your portfolio, like a boutique hotels, et cetera, like are great. Um, a short-term rental is great for cash flow. Markets like Cincinnati, uh, owning, owning multifamily over there, great for cash flow. But there's always give and take. 
So like here, you know, a new construction property, you can, you know, cash flow 6%. Um, you might not be in the double digits, but when you go and sell that property down the line and you add up all of the money that you earned, you're probably going to blow out of the water like what I can earn in my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. Like when that's averaged out and I have a 25 to 30% annualized return, it's still really sexy returns. So I, I think it depends on the person. But yeah, I mean, I've learned, I used to be one of those people that was really worried about investing in Southern California, but I think I've seen the light. I've seen how people can crush it. And um, I would also just finally say that anytime, if you're listening to this, you listen to lots of podcasts and stuff. Anytime someone says, I would never, you can't make money in uh, good money investing in X market. Don't listen to that person because there's always a strategy that works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, 100%, man. Uh, and by the way, just side note, uh, while we were just riffing on this this topic, dude, uh, I forgot to, to share when I brought you in, man. You and I, uh, we hosted a podcast together for three and a half years and we've ripped so many podcasts together. So like the synergy right now, I can feel it. It's just like, it's just like we never miss a beat. Uh, dude, I know. <laughs> I know. There's a reason why we, uh, we messed good, you know, in the beginning as a, as partners and we, and, and we, uh, we're ripping it on that podcast and I a hundred percent agree. Yeah. Yeah. It feels um, good. And, and by the way, shout out to your guys' podcast. So it was the multifamily takeoff when I was on, uh, when I left, you guys repositioned it to the real estate takeoff and you guys are pumping out episodes every single Monday, bring on good guests. You and Mike fucking crush it. But um, shout out to your guys' podcast. Go Thank check you. it out. I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, I still listen to a lot of episodes, FYI. Good. Thank yeah. you, man. I yeah. listen to a lot of your episodes, too. Dude, like, yeah, that. man, dude, I listen. You've, you've really put out some good ones recently, especially. I feel like you've gotten better and better and better at this. And your guests are just insane, the guests that you're able to bring yeah. on. I appreciate, love it. Appreciate your brother. Um, dude, so on that note, man, of the uh, the California stuff, I was I was doing some data research today, this morning, actually, and I was looking at the top 10 states from a tax burden perspective based on this is taking into account uh, sales tax, income tax, property taxes, assuming you own a $375,000 home based as a percentage of your income, the average income in that state. And so they broke down all these states and in this top 10 uh, most affordable and the, the top 10 least affordable in terms of paying the highest blended taxes. And I would have thought California was like on this list as like the like the bottom ten in terms of like high and high taxes. And dude, it was it didn't even make the high the top ten because you know a lot of people don't realize it's like okay, well just because a state doesn't have income taxes, well they're making it up for property taxes and all sales tax and all this other stuff. And so if you actually look at like California, yeah, we got state income tax here, but the property taxes is relatively low, and then you got these other taxes as well, sales tax. But if you look at a base and then you make more money here, people make more income. Oh, yeah. So if you look at it from basis of that, it was kind of middle of the pack across all 50 states, which I found kind of interesting. I find that really interesting. That actually shocks me. I, I wasn't aware of that. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, Texas, there's yeah. there's, you know, no income tax. Well, they have really high property taxes. Extremely high. Some Extremely of the highest in the country. High. Yeah. yeah. So like, yeah, the there's cheaper homes over there and you can get a really nice home for four hundred something thousand dollars. But yeah, you will be paying more in taxes. And also like insurance costs, um, you know, some of these, some of these areas like Florida, people are always, oh, Florida is so cheap. I'm like, well, have you looked at like, ins like property insurance in Florida? Like especially these flood zones. I mean, we size up some deals that are like 10 unit boutique hotels and a hundred thousand dollar premium Whoa. for a year. Like stuff like that, no like way. in Fort Lauderdale and That's stuff. That's insane. Yeah. Crazy, right? I mean, like... I understand why, um, you know, they're dealing, they deal with so many claims. Um, but I mean, like, haven't most of the, uh, insurance companies pulled out of Florida? There's like hardly any left. And now the state is like trying to come up with, with options, right? It's crazy. Yeah. No, there's been a lot of, dude, insurance, as you know, it's been freaking crazy. Like this, this last yeah, 12, 20, 30 months. increases. Yeah. 
you know, so I don't know, man. It's it's definitely it's definitely adjusted the way that we're underwriting deals. I'm sure you guys too. Oh yeah, you know. Oh yeah, like yeah, expense ratios are going up. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. If you love real estate investing, passive income, and tax benefits, but don't have the time, my company Summers Capital is buying boutique hotels right now. We source the deals, we renovate the properties, and we even handle all the day to day management, making it truly hands off for our investors. If you want to learn more to see if we can help you, visit summerscapital.com/invest to book a call with our team. Again, that's Summers Capital com slash invest. Now back to the show. I want to switch gears here because I, I think this is a big topic that like, you know, a lot of listeners will be able to resonate with. But I think the special thing about you and me and, and Mike is like, dude, we were all working this air traffic thing and we decided, hey, we're going to cash out our 401ks after, you know, putting in, I mean, I put in 11 years. How many years were you there? I was at uh, SoCal Tracon for six. For six. And before that, six. you were a, a Navy controller, right? Yeah, yeah. And so you were putting money away to your 401k. Yep. I was as well. Um, and that's that's how I was taught. That's all I knew. That's all I knew what investing was. I thought it was a 401k and I thought it was Wall Street. And that was it. Go buy some stocks and, you know, see what happens. And I, I did a little bit of that. And, and the one thing that I, I, I'm thankful that I did was I maxed out my 401k from day one uh, as soon as I got certified as an air traffic controller. Same. And that was the best thing I ever did because that was my seed money to kind of roll it into the real estate investing. You too. Um, but literally like the three of us, we just cashed out the 401ks. People thought we were crazy. Like, remember that? I do remember that. Uh, I remember my, I feel like my mom and dad were even kind of like bummed because they, they were just like, they could like, oh my God, I can't <laughs> believe you're doing this. Like, good luck, son. Yeah. Like, luckily I was also maxed out my 401k. I remember even like thinking of starting to invest in index funds on the side and put more money into that. I read this book called The Simple Path to Wealth that kind of convinced me that that's the way that the really wealthy do it. Dude, congrats on your new book, man. When did this come out? Um, and, and it's an ebook just for, for clarification that I released that this past summer. Congrats, uh, bro. So it's, yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's just, you know, outlining the bonus ADU program um, and detailing it so people can understand it more. But yeah, the 401ks, man, it's just... Uh, I was pumping money into that and and looking looking back on it now, I realized that for a lot of people, like if you uh, middle class people that want a middle class retirement, like that might be the best fit for them. Like they don't want to take any additional risk. They can calculate, okay, I could retire with my house paid off and, you know, a million dollars in my bank account and I'll try to live off of that and not run out of money. But when I started learning more about it and doing more of the calculations, uh, more of like what it really takes yeah. to have a, a nice flush retirement. I got more and more like away from that. Now I hate 401ks like that. I've never met one person rich in my entire life that was wealthy that got there from a 401k. Mm, that's so good. Dude, it's funny that you said your your parents were like kind of like bummed out. I remember my family, they told me not to do it. Uh, coworkers told me not to do it. Friends told me it was too risky. Um, and looking back, I'm, I'm so glad that I didn't listen to all that because my journey would have stopped there. Oh, yeah. It would have never started. I mean, I'd be... We'd probably be talking about this in the break room right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still working, you know, <laughs> yeah. six day work weeks and grinding and uh, hardly having any social life and putting the money away in that. And, and for the listeners that aren't aware, like so the, as an air traffic controller, it is a it is one of the most stressful careers. Uh, and I, I don't talk about it a whole lot, but it is one of the most stressful careers uh, in America. And, uh, you know, it, it's grueling. You're working nights, weekends, holidays, um, other people, your friends and family are out, you know, doing barbecues for the holidays. You're working. And um you know, it gets busy. Like it's, it, it's up and down, but when it gets busy, like it's pretty crazy. I mean, you got a lot of lives in your hands, you know, busy session. You could be working 20 airplanes. Each of those planes have 150, 200 passengers on them. You're talking to the pilots, you got weather, you got mountain ranges. 
uh, there's emergencies and you're sequencing all these planes. Some are climbing out, some are going, uh, descending and you're, you're lining them up for approach. Uh, and then in the middle of all that, you got these GA planes, these little Cessnas, you got these foreign, uh, student pilots that come out here. They don't speak any English, but they come out here for training in Southern California because, you know, the weather out here is, is pretty good year round. So from a training perspective, they can yep. get a lot of hours in quickly, but dude, uh, just the radio congestion, you got to listen for readbacks and like, you're just like, go, 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 go. And there's a, there's not a lot of time to think and react. And so one simple mistake could be pretty costly. So dude, like you can't just go in there like hungover and like, think, yeah. like oh, I'll be fine. Like you gotta be like, you gotta be on point when you walk in that door. A hundred percent. And like, there's always a shortage of air traffic controllers. I've never known of a, a air traffic control situation where that wasn't happening. And when you sign that contract, you agree to mandatory overtime so they can force you to work that overtime. And most of the time, that's what it was like. You go through those periods where you're not. But like to put in perspective for the listeners, uh, typical schedule for me, I was off Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Usually I would have to work overtime on Wednesday. My weekends were shot. I would have to work Friday nights until 9 p.m., go back into work at 6.30 a.m. on Saturday. Then on Sunday, I would work 5.30 a.m., get off 1.30 p.m., go back to work Sunday night at 9.30 or 10, and then work the graveyard shift until 6 a.m. And I did that every single week. I mean, the people that would like retire at, at our work, so they force you to retire at, at age 56, okay? And the people that were retiring at 56 look like they're 75. <laughs> yeah. God I, bless them. I feel it, bad. It's, but. it's not something to laugh about. And, yeah. and shout out to a lot of the, uh, For the, sure. the folks there. I have a lot of investors and good friends of mine that work there. I know you do too. And I love all of them. So uh, I do this, as well. is, this is no knock on any of those great individuals. Absolutely not. Uh, but this is a knock on the career. It exactly. Is, it is it's not grueling. a conducive career for living a healthy lifestyle. Mm -mm. Um, you're not going to have time to work out. You're not going to have time to eat healthy. And by the time you get to your one day weekend, you're so exhausted that you're just going to sleep. Yeah. And then catch up on your chores. So yeah. I 100% agree, man. We had to get out of that. Yeah. Um, and and one, one last thing to add to this is, and this is, this is, you know, it's kind of a sad topic, but like, it's true. I know many air traffic controllers that when they hit 56, they retired and within the next 12 months, they were dead. Uh, yep. From heart attack and stuff. It's so sad. And, you know, a lot of that is from the kind of hours and shift work we work. Like all these studies have been coming out showing that, you know, working shift work, literally first, second and third shift all within a five day span, how bad that is for your health. And then you're working graveyard shifts where you're trying to stay awake and drinking an energy drink while you're controlling traffic at 2.30 in the morning. After you had just woken up 5.30 a.m. the previous morning, it's it's honestly craziness. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why like it wears down the body over time. And, and, and it is sad and it's rough. But I mean, the caveat is you do make really good money. Dude, what, what is the craziest uh, air traffic control story that you've ever had while you're working traffic? Maybe it's an emergency situation where oh, yeah. a pilot was going down. Like what, what's the craziest situation you ever worked? The craziest situation I ever worked was day one of live traffic training uh -oh. uh, with my trainer, Ben. Uh, awesome guy. So my first day at our facility, first sector, Pacific sector, first time. And I'm sitting there training with the live traffic and I've got a uh, Cessna 172 that reported that uh, his engine was kind of cutting in and out and he was having an engine trouble. And he's passing John Wayne Airport, pointed out the airport tour uh, for him, told him that, you know, that's the closest airport, gave him the weather. Um, and he said, you know what? I think that I can make it to Long Beach. So I'd, I'd prefer to keep going that way. And in air traffic control, the pilot in command is the one that makes that call. So you say, all right, roger that, give him the weather. Well, my trainer took over um, because of the situation. And it turns out this pilot did go down. He went down in a mm. field um, short of the airport and he survived. Uh, he was able to land in a grass field. And that was like crazy to me because this is first day training. And I'm thinking to myself like, man, like 
I got a lot to learn to be able to get to the point where I'm going to feel comfortable with everything that was going on because it was a busy session too. So that's the craziest story I have that I actually worked. Now I've heard of crazier stories, <laughs> yeah. but like, that was the craziest one for me actually working. Yeah, I, I was lucky I didn't have, uh, I, I had a couple people, I had one person die, but it wasn't like a pilot. It was all these like jump planes. You know, I remember when I was at LA Center, I had a, a, a plane going up. So so all these these areas have jump zones, right? Right. Um, and one of the busiest jump zones is actually out in Lake Elsinore. Um, mm -hmm. But this particular incident was when I was at LA Center, I was working like just north of Las Vegas area. But there was a jump zone there in Mesquite, Nevada, and they would just go up all the time in these like Cessna Skylanes, and they would call like two minutes prior to jumping, and we'd be like, "Oh, like attentional aircraft, two minutes prior to jumping, uh, remain clear, one two thousand below, use caution, something like that." Um, and so, anyways, there was traffic below that I wasn't talking to the the these planes, and so I'm like, "Hey, hold your jumpers, hold your jumpers." Delayed the guy like five minutes, and he's like, "Hey, we're jumpers away," and you kind of hear something was off in his voice, oh, and he just dipped. Well, it turns out they ran out of fuel on the way down and like he like rolled the plane into a golf course, flipped it over. Um, the guy survived that one. But I had one in Lake Elsinore. They were jumping out. One of the skydivers hit his head with another skydiver on the way out and oh, knocked man. out, went straight into someone's roof out in like heaven. Dang, yeah. that is crazy. But luckily, like, yeah, and that sucks. But luckily, I never had anything like, you know, crazier than that. Like, you know, some of these like bigger planes, there could be a lot that goes wrong. But I'm shocked, honestly, like looking back, um, just based on like human error and like all the responsibility mm -hmm. in your hands, like all the things that could go wrong. I'm surprised there's not more like accidents. Honestly, that's yeah, that's a, a shout out to the system and how good the air traffic system has gotten over time and, and airplanes. Yeah. I mean, there's so many flights like I think if people saw the airspace and how many flights were, were traversing every single day it would mm -hmm. blow their freaking minds. Yeah. I will admit, though, to you that. I'm I'm a little scared of riding in, in little Cessnas nowadays because <laughs> yeah. I've seen like at I'm the not end of the going day, I'm not going skydiving. People ask me all the time, like, dude, I I, I see what goes down. Yeah. I'm not doing that. Yeah, <laughs> and like you know, it, it, unless it was a really a pilot that I really really trust, um, you know, the airlines like rarely does anything bad happen with those. But I'm not gonna lie to you, well, what, like, there's well, way more than people crashes than people think with the little. Cessnas. What about uh, Mikey Ty, uh, our, our partner? I would trust Mike. I would yeah. trust Mike. Yeah, yeah. He, he flies all the time. He does. He does. Uh, he likes to, he still flies up to Big Bear and, and things like that. I think yeah. it's been a minute since he's flown though. I don't know if he's, uh, if he's current on his hours, mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, I would, I would trust a guy like that for sure because okay. I know Mike, you know, he's, he's got his systems and, yeah, and yeah. he follows the book. So yeah. that would make me comfortable, but it's still scary, man, because like they're, you know, they're from the seventies. Like yeah. you're, you get an Cessna 172. It's mostly like, likely from like 1975 <laughs> or like 1980. And I'm just like, oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. I digress there a little bit, but uh, so we're, we're talking 401k stuff. Friends, family of mine, they're telling me, hey, don't do it. Coworkers are like, you guys are fucking crazy, out of your mind. But I'm so glad that we didn't listen to any of them, right? But 401k, man, for the listeners out there, like, dude, there's so many reasons why it just doesn't work long term. You mentioned, hey, retirement wise, what do you need to retire off this 401k to live a comfortable life? So the the traditional knowledge, and if you use a, a a uh, 401k calculator, usually they use the 4% rule. Mm -hmm. And that come, came from the Trinity study. Basically, I think it's Trinity University somewhere in Texas or something like that, where they studied and calculated that like there is a 98% probability. They, they looked at everything from before the Great Depression and all the way up to like the when the study was published in like the late 90s. If you were to retire every single year, they calculated that if you lived off of 4% of whatever your nest egg is, then you had like a 95% probability of not running out of money before you die. And that's what a lot of the retirement systems are based off of. So to do the math quickly, 
and, and do it the opposite way, you can determine, okay, how much do I want to live off of every single year to, for me to think I'm, I'm comfortable? And for some Americans, they might say, you know, for easy math, 100K, you would need $2.5 million. You multiply by 25. So you need $2.5 million in your retirement account. And the problem is, is in today's money, that might be okay. But in the future, that's not going to be that much money for no, one. It will be worth 50000 by that, that time. And yeah. you got to pay taxes on that money? Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, depending on uh, which route you're going, you can't touch that money until a certain date. So you can throw early retirement out the window. And dude, saving up 2.5 in a, in a 401k, that's probably 2% of people will do that. Exactly. Maybe less than and that. I think a lot of people don't realize, like you, if you're listening to this 1%. and you've never calculated, go onto a calculator, you can Google it, type in how much money you have in your retirement account now and how much you're putting in there every single month. And it'll blow your mind that it's not that much when no. you get to retirement. And here's the thing regardless of how much money you have in there, what you're investing in are index funds, which are stocks, right? It's just a collection of stocks. In order to access the money, you sell shares. So the idea is by living off of 4%, like you have a higher probability of the money not running out, but it's still a nest egg and it's slowly getting drained if you're gonna live off of it. What I love about real estate is if you have a cash flowing property, it cash flows for eternity. And as long as you take care of the property and you're getting richer over time as opposed to someone that's living off their 401k getting poorer. Mm, that's so good. It's it's the complete and utter opposite. And when I started realizing that, that's when I was like, dude, screw my 401k. Like, I understand that's a risk because obviously real estate still carries risk. And if you don't just jump into real estate without knowing what you're doing, you could lose all your money. Yeah. But I think you and I were looking at it as, I have one life to live. I don't want to do this job until retirement age. And I'd rather take that risk and set myself up for a retirement that's evergreen that I could pass on to descendants if I want to. And I can continue growing my wealth and controlling my money instead of letting Wall Street control it. I love that. And to take it a step further, you know, if you look at the median 401k balance by age, you know, folks in their 60s and 50s, 40s, the the median balance by age is like less than $200,000, even at those prime ages. And so to think, okay, maybe you get a million dollars in there. Like if you really push the pedal, uh, you might get to a million dollars. 2.5, dude, I think less than 1% of 1% actually really do that. But let's just say you push it and you get to a million. Okay, well, 4%, you're gonna live off of that annually, which is $40,000. And then you're gonna pay taxes, income taxes on that $40,000. And by the way, this is in 20, 25 years from now, 30 years from now, when that $40,000 is really only gonna be worth 20,000. Good luck. Yeah. Like, what are you going to like live on someone's couch? I mean, yeah, you don't have to go to work, but like you're going to be limited on what, how you can enjoy your golden years, quote unquote, and look no further than the boomer generation. I mean, look at the numbers, look at the typical boomer and what they're um, retiring with. And, you know, if you're listening to this, look to your parents or grandparents, people, you know, and I can almost say with certainty that they're not probably not living the kind of retirement life that you're imagining yourself living. Mm -hmm. And they're probably still having to watch their money budget very strictly so that they can make sure they don't run out of money. That's not the kind of retirement I want to live. Mm. I, same thing. And, and, and if you look at the real estate stuff, it's like, okay, well, real estate is tax advantage. So $100,000 in real estate is $100,000. But also, how quickly can you build up the passive income with the real estate and get to $10,000 a month, get to $20,000 a month? A lot quicker than putting money away in a 401k and pounding your head against the wall six-day work weeks for... 25, 30, 35 years to get there. I mean, it's a lot. I mean, we, for sure. we're testament to that. We, we punched out of that workplace. Once we cash out our 401ks, I mean, personally, I had, I had about 300 and something in there. I, I put away money for like 11 years. 
it grows. It doesn't grow as quickly as they say, but, you know, 300K and then now net worth wise, I mean, I'm pushing about 10 mil net worth almost. And I'm like, dude, had I kept my money in that 401k, kept pounding, no I way. wouldn't be at a million dollars by now. No way. Think about that. And like to that point about like, you know, the, you know, 4% of a million, let's say you're one of the fortunate people to have a million, 4%, 40 grand a year. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, getting to that per year and cash flowing real estate, I won't say there's a lot of things easy. I won't say that real estate itself is easy. But if you start in your 20s, your 30s, or even your 40s, I do believe that it's not that difficult to get to that amount mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, just to the 40 grand a year. If that's, you know, and start beating out a 401k, I think that that's fairly easy in real estate yeah. to, to get done. Um, and, and one last thing to add to this topic, I, I think you could argue that the 401k was not built for the employee. It was almost built for uh, Wall Street and it was built for the uh, the government. 100%. Because right? government, you're, you're basically investing the government's tax money. If you go the traditional route, we're not talking about the Roth, but if you go the traditional route, you are basically investing and compounding and taking all the risk for the government. And by the way, taxes are probably going to go up over time and you're going to be basically investing their money. And then when you go to 59 and a half, now you pay taxes on all that money. That's cash flow for the government. And so the craziest part about that is they penalize you for taking your money out before age 59 and a half, 10% yeah. to the Fed, two and a half percent to the state of California. Mm-hmm. And then at 72 and a half, I believe it is, they will penalize you if you don't start your taking your money out because they know you're about to die and they need to collect their taxes. It's, it's a pretty ruthless system. And yeah. it, it proves that it's, it's built for them and not for you. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, Wall Street, they're making fees on, on your money. Whether your balance goes up or down, you know, it, they, could, they could give you a negative uh, annual performance over the course of a year, but still collect their fees. They make money, you don't. And they're making fees rich and they're not doing anything like yeah. it's a it's an algorithm and a system that's already built in and doing what it needs to do. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, they're the intermediary. So they've got their software set up that's uh, that's taking your money and it's applying it to whatever index fund, you know, whether it's a lifestyle cycle fund, whatever you've picked. But the funds themselves that decide like the the uh, S&P 500 index funds that are cycling through the top performing industries. That's all completed by an algorithm. It's not like people are sitting in a room deciding the best stocks to invest in. So you're paying fees to somebody that's not an expert that's picking stocks. Like it, that's not how it works. So, and then, you know, one, the final point I'll make on that is when it comes to 401ks and the stock market, uh, look no further than the crash of 2008. So if you're approaching retirement age and all your money is still in the S&P 500 index mm-hmm. funds and you're like a year or two out from retirement, and 40% of your retirement gets wiped out from that index fund, you have to keep working. Yeah. And that's what happened to a lot of people. And for the folks that are five years from retirement, they're afraid of that happening. So they start taking their money out of the, the ones that are making 7-8%. Yep. And they put them into ones that have like 1% growth yep. because they don't want to lose the money. So it's like, okay, now you're losing money versus inflation. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know, man. I, here's, my, here's my takeaway looking back with the 401k. It's like, if, if you're not going to do anything with the money, do it right? You got the employee match, go do it. Um, but as soon as you have the opportunity to go roll that into a real estate deal or roll that into a business idea, like do it. Don't even think twice about it. hundred yeah. percent. I agree. I couldn't agree more. Hey guys, real quick. The only way this show grows, the only way we continue to bring on bigger and better guests is if you guys rate review and share the show. So if you could take two seconds or the click of the thumb to review on Apple or Spotify, it will mean the world to me. But more importantly, we'll be able to reach more entrepreneurs and more real estate investors and help them build wealth through this podcast. Now back to the show. If you're going to do it, maybe, maybe roll into the Roth after tax yeah, dollars. And, and I, you don't know, know. I get it. Like, I do want to say like, if 
there's people out there that are okay with the things that we talked about that are okay with more, they want that more modest lifestyle. They love their job. They, they might love the company they work for and they just want to do that traditional route, not have to think of anything and maybe real estate stresses them out. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're okay with that middle class, um, traditional middle class uh, retirement, you know, that's cool. Yeah. But uh, it's not for me. Yeah. So, uh, dude, so we split up in like October and Mm -hmm. dude, that was a successful partnership, man. We like, we ripped it. Think about what we did. We did some crazy stuff and we still own uh, two deals together. Mm -hmm. Um, The Arbor's Townhomes, 150 unit townhome community in Greensboro, North Carolina. And Timber Creek Apartments, 145 units, also out in Greensboro, North Carolina, with our co-sponsor and our mentor, Tony Azar and, right. and John Azar. Shout out to them. Uh, but so we split up in October. What have you been doing since October, man? Whoo, man. Um, an enormous amount of work. By the uh, way, you the, hear the trains? Yeah, isn't dude, that crazy? How crazy is the train thing? It, they're doing it in the middle of the night, dude. I know. Like, yeah. I can hear it in my building in Luma, which is a couple blocks up. Yeah, what does it sound like in your building? It's still loud, man. And I'm on the east side of the building, oh. east, north, northeast corner. Yeah. And uh, it wakes me up. Dude, okay, I can... I, deep poor people that live right here, man. Dude, I feel bad because uh, it, it's... To give some context to listeners, there's a, a quiet... There's a quiet ordinance here with the train. So there's like four train tracks that go right through Little Italy, this neighborhood, right behind our podcast studio here. There's, uh, you know, thousands of residences in this neighborhood. It's a quiet neighborhood. There's never crime here. I never see cop cars. But um, since I've been living here, uh, it's been seven years now. The trains don't honk their horns when they go through here unless there's an emergency. Someone's on the tracks or something. And um, all of a sudden, like five, six days ago, they're blaring. So I guess the city has not been in compliance with certain exactly, things over yeah. the last 12 months. And so they reversed this quiet zone. And so I feel like the the trains are like, the conductors are like, they're I think not so just too. like honking, like they are like making it known when they yeah. come through. And they're, they're just, like, we've been telling y'all, so I'm going to really rip it now. Yeah, they're <laughs> ripping it. Like they're just laying on for like 10, 15 seconds. Uh, and so it's loud. So, I mean, we can hear it right here in the office all the time. But I really feel bad for the residents right here. Ariel, yeah. Breeze, I'm like, dude, you got to hear that when you're sleeping. Like you can't even sleep throughout the night because these trains don't stop. I, you know, there's people in that building that are like, you know, some nurse that probably just worked like a really long shift uh, halfway into the night and they're trying to get some sleep and and that's ripping. So yeah. I do feel for those people, man. I'm Oh, I'd be pissed. Yeah. I, at least to live at Ariel, I'm so glad I left. Yeah, because, um, I mean, if it's waking me up two, two, three blocks up, I mean, Jesus, it's... It's funny because um, I was I was leaving the office the other night. I think it was Thursday night last week. And there was a CBS 8 news camera out there right in front of our office. And they're doing content. And they're like, hey, you want to you come on? We want to interview you. And I said, oh, I'm okay. Because um, I didn't want to get on and complain about the trains. I thought it was just temporary for these this construction that was going on. And so I'm walking and I walk in front of Ariel. I see one of the property managers out there. She's like, aren't you glad you moved out? She's like, this is a permanent change for now. And I was like, what? I was like, hell no. Whoa. I was like, I'm going back. I was permanent like, better I was be like, one month. <laughs> I was like, let's rip this interview real quick. So I got on and I was like, I was giving it to him a little bit. I was like, yo, been here seven years. This is a quiet neighborhood. It's peaceful. You never see cop cars here, but it's like, this is excessive. I get if it's emergency, but this is excessive. Podcast yeah. studios here, like. I don't want this stuff. Yeah. Man. It's and too for, much, man. And I feel like, it, you know, whatever the compliance is that they need to do, like how long does it take you as a city to to get that done when there's those horns blaring? So I agree 100%. It's insane, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so October happens. You you guys are like, hey, because um, I, I think you guys had a, con- a deal and a contract up in Washington. It was a boutique hotel, Leavenworth. Yeah. So we were working on that. So that it, it was October 2022 for the listeners. So a little more than a year ago. 
that that project and they've they they're still trying to sell by the way they reached back out to us and have like softened their pricing a little really? bit really? yeah yeah um they should have sold to us when they could and we told them like yo interest rates are going up like if you if you're gonna have to get it give it to us for for less much less than what you're asking for and we couldn't come to terms um sellers are playing hardball they said they wanted to retire and move to like the virgin islands or something like that but I think they're going to struggle now trying to get anything close to what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back all the way to that, like after we split, I mean, man, there was a lot that went down. I mean, we were hungry to get our next deal. Uh, so we were searching far and wide for the direction we wanted to go. So it was like back to the drawing boards a little bit. It was back to the drawing boards yeah. a little bit in the sense of like, do we want to really go this boutique hotel route? Do we want to stick with value add multifamily? Whatever it is, we want to pick one thing and we want to hone in on it and become experts. Mm. So we really felt like we also wanted to be here in San Diego. Most of our investors are in San Diego. We're really bullish on San Diego. Um, I could go on and on about it. So we had some buddies that were doing the bonus ADU program um, and really successful with it. And the more we learned about it we, and that in the complete communities program, the more we, we, got, we just kind of fell in love with that idea. Uh, and we saw the opportunity. And I really think that like it, the market was becoming challenging with the interest rates going up, um, blood in the streets, everyone's fearful. We knew that we had to find some kind of niche that we can hone in on that made sense during that time. And that's what we found. And that's what we, so number one, we got very deep in the weeds on getting a project done. So in April of last year, we closed on a project at Ocean Beach. We're going to be building a 10-unit apartment complex. Dude, Ocean con- congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ocean views for second and third floor units, unobstructed. It's going to be a beautiful property, rooftop deck, the whole nine. But aside from that, I mean, there was a lot more we were doing too. Like we really wanted to start structuring the business more heavily. So we we brought in business coaches. Uh, we brought in marketing coaches and marketing teams. Uh, invested a lot back into the business. So completely rebuilding, essentially, um, websites, uh, email marketing schedules, writing books, writing the ebooks so that we can bring more marketing materials uh, online and teach our investors about what we're going to be doing. Making key partnerships. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But uh, it was basically like an, a completely new business structure. And that was a, took a lot of our time last year. Uh, a lot of time and resources spent investing into that. And then we did the Ocean Beach project and now we got a Pacific Beach project that we're doing. Uh, so we just went back to back on projects there. And I mean, honestly, it's exploded. There's just been so much activity. Um, we went from having, you know, maybe 20 investors on our investor webinars and our last one had 113 investors. I love that, dude. That's huge. T- tell us about the Ocean Beach project. So what exactly is it um, and, and what's your business plan there? So essentially, we bought a single family home that's on a multifamily zone lot. Okay. Um, this home fits all the criteria for us to be able to essentially add units. So I'll provide a little bit of context to your listeners without trying to go too deep into the weeds because I know that could take a long time. But for those that don't know what a bonus ADU program is, ADUs are accessory dwelling units. Rich might have explained that on a show before. And the city, knowing that there's no buildable land, if there's a multifamily zone lot in particular, And you can essentially build an unlimited number of additional units, essentially an unlimited number of apartment units up to the floor area ratio of a lot. So this might mean, depending on the lot size and the type of zoning, this might mean that you can take a single family lot and make it 10 units, 20 units. I've even seen, I think the biggest one to date using the bonus ADU program is over 100 units in Chula Vista. That's big right there. Yeah. So 
it's a, it's it's just adding density and basically the city is saying like okay we got a housing issue at the very least mm-hmm. the zone the lots we had zoned long ago to be multifamily need to be multifamily so with this project that's what we're doing uh we're building we're taking a single family home we're adding nine ADUs to it one of the ADUs is basically a conversion of a unit inside the house and then the rest of it is a three story structure in the back um, it's going to be a mixture of one bedrooms and then the f- top floor is going to be two, two bedrooms, uh, two, two bed, two baths. Um, and the rest of them, one bedrooms, um, there's going to be four units affordable. So one of the caveats with the bonus ADU program is every unit, the additional unit you make, you ma- have to match a rent or deed restricted unit. So those units will be restricted to people, uh, that are make essentially 80% of the median household income in ocean beach. Okay. And that's restricted for 15 years. But the idea is just to put this new product online, like, you know, in a market like Ocean Beach, if you go and look at how many units have in-unit washer and dryer, uh, in-unit air conditioning, central air, and nearby parking, that's not a pain in the ass to find. Mm-hmm. It's way less than 10% of the units. Uh, and if you were to look today, there's probably none available. Yeah. So you're a- we're able to put this product online that's going to be highly, highly sought after. And I love the Ocean Beach neighborhood. I mean, you got uh, the Point Loma side with like San Diego Yacht Club and all that area over there. Um, and then on the other side, you got Sunset Cliffs. So you got, you know, Pacific Ocean, Sunset View. So you literally watch the sunrise on the Point Loma side with like the San Diego Bay and downtown skyline. And then you can literally watch the the sunset. Uh, on the Pacific Ocean side. And then just the vibe there, it's unique. Great food. Um, Shout out to Obi Noodle House. I yeah. love you. We love Obi Noodle House. There's two of them there. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I mean, like, we're up on the hill too. So, like, you come down from Point Loma and, like, we're on the way down towards the Central Drag and Pacific Beach or, excuse me, in Ocean Beach. So, we're essentially, like, when I when I saw the lot and, like, we brought a drone and I said, yo, like, take that drone up to 20 <laughs> and 25 feet. I want to see what these units are going to see. And I just saw pure ocean. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, I like that. Like, I like that. these are going to fly off the shelf. Yeah, that's sick. And we're also going to uh, line the fence line with um, uh, storage units that we'll charge extra for because, like, that's also something that a lot of people want. A lot of people surf over there and things yeah. like that. We want a place for them to put that. I like that. I like that. So what, what's the timeline to get this this project done? So essentially, uh, 18 months conservatively before we're breaking ground, I think we're going to be before then. But the caveat to like the, the markets we like to focus on are that they are in the coastal zone. So the coastal zone in 2022, I believe it was October of 2022, they switched it up to where uh, San Diego was like, no, Coastal Commission, we need this land mm. and we need to add more. So they uh, separated by appealable and non-appealable sections. The non-appealable sections of the coastal zone, all that authority is now given to the city. So you're not submitting to the uh, coastal commission anymore, unless that's like, nice. you, yeah, yeah, unless you you know trigger certain events. There are things that can trigger uh, uh, what they call a process three review, but all of that is now delegated to the city, which increases timelines, fewer hoops to go through. And to put it into perspective, if you're like, okay, what happens if you're in the uh, appealable? Your neighbors can literally band together, hire an attorney and appeal the decision for whatever you're doing there. And they can have all sorts of say. I mean, that can extend your timelines to two years plus, And you literally go before a panel and a hearing with your neighbors there and like argue your case. Yeah, that's insane, man. Um, dude, that's that's exciting, man. I can I can I can I can visualize the finished product there. And I, I know you guys are going to crush it with that one. So 
super exciting and, and congrats, yeah. man. Yeah, I, man. I want, we're going to have big windows. Like I was telling the designer, yeah. like I want as many windows as you can possibly fathomly yeah. put in this building. As you should. Yeah. Uh, will you guys look to, when you get the permits, see if you can get a good offer that makes sense just to exit with the permits in hand? I don't think so because I've seen a lot of people doing that. And uh, there's a lot of those products coming on the market now. Almost every day, my inbox is full of people that are trying just to sell permit. Fish. And like, I just don't think, I think that you can make a buck. But if when you're splitting profits with investors, I don't think it's going to be worth it. Yeah. If this was just, you know, if, if you're just somebody that want, that wants to do this yourself, I do think you can make a couple hundred grand doing that. But I think the real value, we're going to lease this up. We're going to hold it for a year. Because uh, for tax reasons, basically, uh, get depreciation. Well, if you if you have to basically once you list the property for uh, rent, if you sell with before a year, then it's treated as ordinary income. So they'll have like a thirty five percent tax rate or whatever. Mm. If you wait at least a year after that, it'll be capital gains. So you you save a lot on taxes. So you don't want to sell right away. And I think the same thing would happen if we just sold it permit ready. Uh, don't quote me on that. I'm not entirely sure. But um, the idea would be to lease it up and sell it and, and have this like beautiful product that somebody will likely 1031 into and hold for a long time. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So, um, you know, with the ADU play, man, I'm, I'm, I see it everywhere here. We're doing one here in, um, in Lit Italy. It's first ever ADU in Lit Italy. I had Sick. no idea. Uh, dude, but congrats, man. That, by the way, your renovations are looking freaking insane on thank that you, thing. Dude. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, I... Uh, but I'm not like an ADU expert or anything like that. It's just like, oh, like let's. It's a fun little side project, and uh, it's been kind of a, it's been fun thus far. I had no idea it was the first one in this neighborhood, but I'm like, okay, even even cooler, you know. But yeah. they're actually allow, allowing us to go three story ADU. It's it's two bedroom, two and a half bath with a uh, rooftop. The third story is a rooftop Pew, oh, uh, yeah. deck with like a jacuzzi and kind of like a lookout area. Nice. It's like the biggest we can possibly do uh, and still be like an ADU. Mm -hmm. um, so excited for that. But it is in a uh, historic zoning. And so the permitting process, I was told, instead of being inside 12 months, it's going to be closer to probably 18 months. So we'll see. Yeah. And I know people that have done it in historical sections and Really, the biggest caveat is like they're probably going to tell you what siding you can put on it and stuff like that. I think in most cases, you just kind of kind of have to match the original structure. Um, I know Seth just did one in a historic area, a two in a historic area, I believe. So like, uh, yeah, I, I think that you'll have a couple hoops to jump through, but I think that it's worth it. You get that done in Little Italy. Oh, my God. It's going to kill. Yeah, it will be fun. And I'm excited because I'm like, it, it's like literally on the same street as Simone. So it's like two blocks away. I'm like, it's kind of cool ne next to the dog park. Really cool. So uh, and now you got another deal in, in PB. You guys have in a contract. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that deal. So I won't tell like too many specifics um, because we are in the middle of, uh, you know, the capital raise on that one and stuff. But essentially we're using what's called the Complete Communities Program. Now, this is another density program that San Diego invented uh, to try and solve their housing crisis. Essentially... It's very much like the bonus ADU program, okay? But you get way more density bonus. And it's they, they, they there's essentially a map, and I guess the best way I could describe it is you're kind of restricted more towards being right next to main roads. So like typically complete communities, like let's say you're, you know, on Garnett or a block from Garnett, um, you know, any major road where the public transportation is is where they're going to restrict that. And it's usually got to be on a multifamily zone lot. But to put it in perspective, like the FAR on this property was like, um, like a 1.0 or something like that. And complete communities jumps it up to a 2.5. Wow. FAR. Um, so to put that in perspective, like you can build 40 units if you want. And it's currently a single family, uh, two single families, two single families. Yeah. Wow. 
So yeah, you can uh, buy two lots right in, that are side by side and you can combine them into one. You can buy three and combine them and then you can build a big apartment complex, which is what people do. And are these two separate lots right now? Yeah. From same owner? Yeah, uh, different owners. How did you guys structure that? Basically, the broker did it. Uh, the broker is a savvy guy and he knew the value of that land and hit up both of these owners and was like, look, if we sell this together, they're going to be a lot more valuable because somebody can build a big apartment complex here. And he's absolutely right. Like what we paid for those lots is more than what they're worth on a, just a single family home basis. Um, if you were just going to like buy a single family home, we paid more than what, what that's worth. But the value is in the dirt and, and what you can do with it. Um, like to, it's just so rare that you have a lot big enough to build a big enough apartment in a place like Pacific Beach. Even more rare that two lots side by side in a prime location where you can walk to Sprouts, Trader Joe's, the beach, I mean, less than a mile from the beach, all of that with two lots side by side that you can build a big apartment complex. I mean, that opportunity might not come around for five more years. I don't know. But a couple of things I like about the program, obviously, that I can build a big apartment complex, um, but also the fact that I can I have to do fewer affordables compared to the bonus ADU program. So if we were doing the bonus ADU program, I wouldn't be able to build as many units and I would have to do six affordable units at minimum. With this one, we're doing four. And even if we build 40 units, 50 units that are all studios, whatever we want to do, only four affordable units because it's based on the base zoning. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I like about all that. Uh, we're also going to be putting uh, partial parking. So we're going Sick. underground one, one uh, really? level. Yeah. Wow. Um, and we're going to have... What is something like that run to go underground parking? Dude, it's expensive. You're talking north of $50,000 a spot. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. But the good news is, is like there's ways around that. So you, there's a lot of different ways that architects can do it. They can do what's called podium parking. So you can just make the first floor, um, like, like maybe even half of the building underneath the building could be, uh, some parking without or, going underground, without going underground. Yeah. And then it's basically just on big podiums or, or whatever, yeah. big pillars. But now are you taking away from the possible units? Exactly. Up top? Exactly. Okay, so you're going to go underground. So we're going to go underground. You can even do, there's a lot of, so we're going underground just one floor, uh, because like to continue going deeper, it's is, more expensive. It, it starts getting kind of crazy. <laughs> like you can get up to a hundred thousand dollars a parking spot. Wow. Like that. That's crazy. So it, it's really expensive. Then the engineering, shoring, um, timelines get longer. You have to now pump out, set up pump systems and stuff for the water. You know, two days ago, uh, obviously, thankfully, that, you know, our, these buildings around here have the pump systems and stuff. It gets crazy fast. And so in order to really start going deeper underground, you have to have a ton of units for to justify it. So how many parking spots will you guys have for the four? Probably 15 to 20. 15 to 20. Okay. Yeah, probably okay. 15 to 20. What's What about the unit mix? So the unit mix, uh, that's a good question. Uh, we're we're going to be focusing on more two bedrooms. And this gets moved around so many times. Like as you actually engage an architect and pay them to start working on the project and they take surveys and measurements, deciding, you know, okay, you know, if you want to do two bedrooms, we can do 50% two bedrooms, 50% one bedrooms. So a lot of it has to do with the site itself. Uh, how it shakes out on each floor. You know, you could say, I want all two bedrooms. And they say, well, if we're going to make them all 800 square feet, we got a little 500 square foot area in the corner on each floor that it, that we can't, it's not a round number. So you might say, okay, let's throw some one bedrooms in. But I think there's, there's not an exact math to it, but what you want to look at are the current supply of units in a given submarket. How many two bedrooms versus one bedrooms are there? What's the vacancy rates between the two? Mm. How fast are these going to lease up? Um, you know, talk, working with property managers, what, where the demand is at. There's a lot of factors that all go into it, but we're probably going to land somewhere between 50% two bedrooms, 50% one bedrooms. The cool thing about a market like Pacific Beach is, dude, you could put almost anything. 
and it's going to lease up. Last year, the, the vacancy was at 2%. 2%. And like, wow. I think April. That's crazy. Um, we've talked to so many of the top property managers and they almost laugh when you say, how long do you think this thing is going to take to lease up? What do they they'll say? They'll just chuckle and they'll tell you, give me a month, a month and a half worst case scenario. For all 40? Yeah. Wow. You, you can basically start pre-leasing too. You know how buildings yeah. would do. Like you, you, before you have your certificate of occupancy, you can start throwing pictures up and stuff like that and kind of get ready. So that also helps, you know? Yeah. So um, when you when you guys start stabilizing all these buildings, will, will you guys hire third-party property management? Absolutely. Or what's your plan? You will? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. We'll hire some third-party property managers. It's just like we don't have the scale for it to make yeah. sense but for us. But you guys will be do... hands-on with it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like I, I want to be hands-on and kind of direct, especially when it comes to the marketing. One of the things that I've always hated about a lot of traditional property managers is that they treat the online presence of the unit they're marketing like it's just a crappy Airbnb, like bad photos. Dude, we saw this with Breeza. Exactly. Yeah. And like so many owners, like you could look in Pacific Beach right now and there's like properties listed for rent and the and the opening photo is like half of a an oven and a dirty microwave. And like that's your most important piece of real estate outside of the real estate itself. Like everyone shops for their rental unit online now and they shop with emotion. So like, I, you know, there's certain things that I'll definitely like, we're going to be a little more hands-on and directive with, but like, you know, managing long-term rentals until you have a larger portfolio, it typically doesn't make sense, you know? Mm -hmm. But like, I wanted to say regarding the unit mix and stuff, one of the things that we showed our investors for our pitch deck and things like that is how sought after new units are um, that have renovated. Yeah. renovated. It's not just renovated, but this is brand new construction. And are you guys going like high end with the finishes and the fixtures or are you going kind of like mid grade? Yeah, we're going to go high end. The yeah, cool thing though, Rich, well. is that like the price difference to go high end on apartments, like even like my apartment, I live in Luma, like what you see is high end, like those cabinets, like those aren't real cherry cabinets. Like you're getting something that's, you know, basically got a picture of nice cabinet wood typically. The flooring is still going to be LVP. You know, you can like have nicer finishes and like some nice tile showers and you're not spending that much yeah, money. Yeah, an extra so, 10, 15%. Yeah. It, but rent wise, I mean, you're you're commanding a lot more rent. Exactly. Than 10% sometimes. So like uh, to put it into perspective for the listeners, and this is one of the things we did on the, our pitch deck to really demonstrate it, is I showed, okay, as of today, this is how many two bedrooms are available for rent in Pacific Beach. And I think there was like 107. Mm-hmm. Then at next slide was a screenshot of the number of two bedrooms available in Pacific Beach that have in-unit washers and dryers. And the number goes down to like 50 or 40. Mm -hmm. Then the next slide, this is how many have in-unit washer and dryer and air conditioning. It goes down to like 14. Mm. This is the number that have all of that and uh, parking on, on location. It's like single digits. It was like four or five. And then the number that of all of those that were also built within the past 10 years, there's zero available. Mm. And that's for two bedrooms and one bedrooms. All of the apartments, so our architect has built like most of the new apartments in, in Pacific Beach. They're all 100% occupied. Dude, I love that. Yeah. Um, you got me thinking when you're talking about like leasing up units with the property managers and how a lot of these third party property managers are just like they can't be trusted. Um, with Reza 32, dude, we got into like uh, a pretty crazy situation. Uh, yeah. So give the listeners some context. You know, we closed on this property uh, December of 2019. We cashed out our 401ks to buy this deal. This is like our first apartment deal together. And, um, you know, we get into renovating units and, uh, you know, we, our occupancy dips and we're starting to turn some of the units and we go to start leasing them up and all of a sudden COVID 2020 boom hits. And we're like, guys, like, what are we going to do? Everyone's on lockdown. It's hard to lease up units. Our property manager is not doing a good job of helping lease up these units. 
And we're like running low on money. We're like, all right, what are we going to do? I remember having like calls and meetings. We're like, all right, what are we going to do? And, you know, push come to shove. We got creative. Um, what were some of the methods that we utilized back then? So some of the methods we utilized because we were realizing. Uh, uh, so first, some of the things we, we realized before I, to provide some context, for example, is that like our property manager at the time, we'd, we'd be like, hey, you know, uh, we're secret shopping. We've had these people reaching out to us on the Facebook marketplace when are you guys doing these tours? And they'll say like, oh, well, you know, our normal business hours are 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and we don't do tours outside of normal business hours or on weekends. And it's like, so the only way that these people, these, you know, blue collar working class people are gonna view our units is if they call in sick to work to come view it or they just happen to have a day off. Most people wanna, are probably gonna view it when they're not, don't have to work and aren't gonna take off work to do it. Or they might be like, you know what, I'm gonna search for my next apartment this weekend when I got some time. And our uh, property manager was not catering to those people. So what we did, which was great, and I think you had the idea for the leasing agent, which was we called a local real estate agent and uh, asked her, gave her basically said, look, we'll give you a percentage of each of these lease ups, this like solid dollar amount uh, for you to simply do tours. And each one of these that we get leased up, um, you'll get your cut. And on, in addition to that, we obviously set up the, some of the self-tour stuff but we also set up our own listings and on Craigslist yeah. and Facebook Marketplace. Facebook Marketplace Dude, was like crazy was because they only were listing our property, I think, on like Zillow or something. Yeah. And like a lot of platform, other platforms they and, weren't. And shout out, I think Swanee was like the one that we kind of like, I think he was like the one that was pumping yep. the Craigslist. And then uh, somehow the Facebook Marketplace came to fruition and that was like a banger. I think that was his idea too yeah. because he was saying how, how successful he is with Facebook Marketplace. Yeah, yeah. And it's true. Like a lot of people look for their rentals on there. I think we increased our like number of like people reaching out by like 140% or something crazy. It was like just an enormous increase in people interested and we were filling up units like way faster that way. So we renegotiated with the property manager um, saying like, hey, like let's, we'll, you guys only take this much for the lease up fee or whatever it was because we're going to take this on ourselves. And so we basically just like a la carte them for some <laughs> of the property management stuff so that we can... dude. That that property man, like it, it was our first uh, deal together, and we made so many mistakes. Yeah. Oh yeah. But like, dude, I learned so many lessons with that property, and and, and we all did. But dude, it, it really like is a testament to like how generous and forgiving real estate can be mm -hmm. if you just buy in good locations and you get creative. You know, and problem solve. Things are going to come up. You can't plan for everything. Like, how many things came up post close that even even pre closing? I mean, I remember being out there for the inspection. To give you guys some context, I mean, this is 32-unit building in a, a suburban neighborhood uh, in Indianapolis, about 15 miles south of downtown Indy, an area called Greenwood. Decent neighborhood. Schools are like sevens, sixes and sevens, so pretty decent. Median household income, you know, about 60K at the time. It's probably 70K now. And a uh, pretty decent suburban neighborhood. That said, we bought a really ugly-looking building that was run down. It was mom and pop owned for like 20, 25 years. Um, there was some sort of like, I think the husband had passed away. Yeah. And then there was like the the wife and her like brother were fighting over like what was going to happen. I remember the closing took a while because of that. But I remember being out there for the um, for the inspection with you and Mike. And I'm like, the cops showed up like on two separate occasions <laughs> yeah. during the inspection. There was like drug deal going down. There was probably prostitution going down. Um, and then we got inside these units and bro, 
Like it was rough. Dude. It was rough. We we always joked that like we essentially bought it was a brick building and we we joked that we like bought a pile of bricks because <laughs> like outside of the bricks it seemed like everything had to be replaced. Yeah, yeah. Like you name it, like everything from top down, the roof had to be replaced, firewalls inside of the uh uh the attic, um all of the interiors, windows, fascia, soffit, I mean, concrete patios so much deferred maintenance and in inside of the units was even worse yeah i mean there was uh i remember there was one move out we had like a hoarder i don't know if you remember that photo I do. yeah but it was like a hoarder and uh it, it looked like it looked like no one has cleaned this unit in 20 years when i show people pictures of when we were there for the inspection i have a picture and you're actually in the photo because you're like walking across the living room <laughs> and i've shown people like yeah this is what it looked like before and then I like pause for a moment for them to look at it. And I say, that's carpet, by the way, because <laughs> it looks like concrete on the mm-hmm. ground, but yeah. it's so dirty and nasty. Ugh. And uh, that always blows people's minds. Like it was that bad. And the appliances um, were like straight from the 60s. Yeah, it was a 1968 vintage yeah. property, I think. And I don't think they touched it no. since 1968. That's how bad it was. Yeah. I don't think they repaired anything from, from since 1968. Yeah. It was like even the, the doors were original, like everything. The uh, the drawers in the, the kitchen drawers. You would pull them out and they're not on a track or anything. They're just loosely dangling inside the <laughs> cabinet box. So like we had to completely replace those. And we did. I mean, it was like, I, I would say that like there's a lot of learning lessons, but one of them is definitely if you're listening to this, like taking on a that heavy of a value add, that's a tough thing to do for your very first project. That was a nightmare. It was. In many <laughs> ways. Was. But we came out on the other side. I mean, we 3X yeah. our investment. We yeah. did good. Yeah, so numbers wise, we bought it for one point two. We had a thirty five thousand dollars seller credit, so all in net like one point one six five, and then uh, we ended up selling around three point one, like exactly twenty four months later. But you know, there was a lot of learning lessons in between. There was a lot of mistakes made. We ran out of money. Like at one point, we borrowed a two hundred thousand dollar note from Sean McCartan's dad at like six percent interest only, which that saved us. Yes. That gave us the money necessary to uh continue renovating and all that sort of thing. And then fast forward, we we get into twenty twenty end of twenty twenty one, cap rates are crazy low, interest rates are like two point five percent. And like all of a sudden there's like this huge crazy demand for multifamily. And we're underwriting other deals to buy at that time. And we're like, like these pricing guidances aren't even making sense. And we're passing on these deals and then We'll circle back to see what they close at, like, you know, to what they trade at 90 days later. And we're like, bro, like $5 million above the pricing gun. It's like, this is insane. Like, what are, what are people looking at? I remember when you talked to the broker, you, you were like, dude, let's see if we can sell it right now. Um, let's it for sale. And I remember th- just being like, I don't think we're going to get much for it. And yeah. you were like, the broker says we can get like 3.15. And I yeah. remember th- saying like, holy cow, if he can get that, then <laughs> hell yeah, let's list it for sale. Yeah. Never in a million years did I think it was, yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. Because we, and, and the other thing is we, we didn't renovate all the units. We renovated 50% of the units and the broker says stop renovations. He said, um, people will pay more for unrenovated units right now than they will pay for renovated units. That was just how much, that's how crazy the market was. People were like, oh, I want to value out of property. And we had proven that, you know, we could get an extra, I don't know, what we take the rents from. Do you remember? I think that the two beds were renting for six or $700. When we bought it. When we bought it. And afterwards, they were mid 900 Which still sounds so cheap. Yeah, it sounds so cheap. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's basically a 50% increase in yeah. rent. Yeah. But like, it's it's insane to think that, like, you know, when you're contrasting that to a place like here. <laughs> Where like a two bedroom is forty five hundred dollars for a, for a new place, like, and I think the ones were going, some of them were going for like in the four hundreds when we bought it, yeah, and then we took them to like probably closer to seven, right? Yeah, and there were exactly, and um, 
I mean, like, so I, we're making it sound like, you know, like, obviously this was, uh, you know, middle uh, blue collar uh, workforce housing. Yeah, but, it was. And it was. was but like, man, when you see the after photos, man, you know what was crazy? Or were those two story balconies, second story balconies oh, we had? Oh, yeah, place? dude. So when we bought this place, it had second story balconies with with concrete on them that were built in the 60s. And they were literally leaning. And like, even the insurance company was like, guys, you got to replace this within like Someone's a gonna period die. of time. Yeah. yeah. And that was like, I mean, when I say we bought a pile of bricks, guys, I mean, we replaced <laughs> everything. The front doors, hallways, uh, yeah. and water heaters, uh, Dude, parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's, how much did those balconies cost? We did. We replaced 16 of them. That was not cheap. And like right at over 100,000, I want to say it was like $105,000. Yeah, that was not cheap. And you're not really adding values when you, you know, replace balconies right hvac units not really adding value and oh, so man, those, those things are kind of sunken cost right but you know i think one of the what saved us there was a couple things we got creative with the lease up that was a big pivot um and then also um just the environment went kind of freaking nuts i mean we did prove out the value add there but we exited at the perfect time i mean let's let's be honest we exited at the perfect time we got into the industry at the perfect time to be honest with you rich we've been nailing timing yeah. so far i think and knock on wood. But I mean, that's about as good of a time as you could exit it. I mean, like that is the absolute, absolute peak. The cap rate that the people paid to buy it and they're doing well. Uh, I've talked to the, to the owner. He's an awesome guy, Derek, uh, had him on the podcast and they're doing well, but the cap rate that they paid is like way lower than the cap rate. We're going to exit. We're projecting to exit in ocean beach and Pacific beach. Yeah. And if you gave me a choice, I mean, yeah. It, it was, I think it was the property next door that was like a couple hundred unit property. And we saw that was like being marketed for sale and the guidance. And then I remember I was talking to the broker and he's like, yeah, like we got offers at this number. And that was like a similar vintage property. It wasn't that nice. And we're, he's like, yeah, I'll get you something similar for, for this one. He's like, maybe we'll market it together. And I think I he tried that. to do that. Yeah, yeah. And then sure enough, sure enough, we had a, a few offers and um that i think the offer we took had like hard money and like they seemed legit it, i think it was derek and um yeah shout out to them so you know they they were able to get the financing um appraisal came in where it needed to be and they ended up closing on deal and dude that was our first full cycle deal and dude that was. was a huge win so uh bought it for 1.165 after the seller credit and we exited like 3.15 i believe mm -hmm. uh in 24 months i mean that was a huge win for all of us we did a tick tenants in common and 1031 our separate ways. And that was our, our first big win in the real estate space, man. Yeah. I mean, that was really like a, a huge catapult for all of us. You yeah. know, like when you're tripling your initial investment and are able to then go deploy that somewhere else. I mean, that's just so huge. Um, you turned 1031 into your big uh, Airbnb in Scottsdale, right? Yeah, I did a 1031 into that one because we were like getting heavy into the Airbnb stuff at the time. Yeah. Like, Dude, I want to go find like a luxury property in Scottsdale. Um, and you, you actually, uh, went a different direction. You didn't actually technically 1031, right. but you used depreciation from other stuff to, to make up for it. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there was a lot of reasons for that. I mean, like I wasn't able to really identify the exact property I wanted in the timeline. I, I had a lot of things going on at the time. I was also like worried about like the riskiness of doing a uh, drop and swap and things like that. So there was a lot of things playing in my mind on why I didn't, I'm the only guy that didn't do the 1031. Looking back on it, I probably should have just done it mm -hmm. uh, to save on the taxes, but it wasn't the end of the world because I had lots of write-offs anyways. Yeah, I love that. But it goes to show too how many times like we've pivoted in, in real estate. Like, And I think that for the listeners, like that's something that you want to always keep on the table is like, 
it might not always be the best time to do a certain type of investment, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's like, you know, doing a value add multifamily on a 1968 vintage property, uh, maybe doing an Airbnb in a certain market, uh, maybe doing, you know, new development. There's always a time and a place. And sometimes you got to take what the defense is giving you. Dude, that's so good, man. And you're so right. I mean, people ask me all the time, like, where, where should I start? Because there's a hundred ways to make money in real estate. I'm like, well, there's no right or wrong. Like, I, I think agree. the main thing is that you just start. Because, yeah. you know, it's, to your point, it's like, you know, we've done a little bit of everything, uh, you know, small apartment, short-term rental, boutique hotel. You guys are doing ADU stuff now and developing um, and you can make money and all. So it's like, find something that resonates with you and, and just get started. I think that's the main thing. Yeah. And find something that gets your blood pumping. They get you excited. <laughs> yeah. Like 1968 value add, like it makes money. Um, but it's not something that I'm just like, it puts a big smile on my face. And one of the things that's putting a big smile on my face and getting me excited is developing these beautiful properties mm -hmm. in markets that I love. And owning good and, dirt. And owning good dirt yeah. in places that I love, I know, and I feel proud to own it. And that's what gets my blood pumping. So I've found a strategy that like, I'm excited about. Like I, I, when I find a property, I'm amped. It, it wakes me up. It's like, you know, so I, I think that you might even need to bounce around and try a couple of different things in real estate to find that. But once you find it, I think you know you're on the right path. Yeah. Well, brother, I uh, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. I'm a big fan of everything you guys are doing. And um, dude, we're going to have to run it back soon on on your podcast. Yeah, we're going to run it back soon. Uh, when I get back in February, I want to get you on because I want I want you to tell everybody about your boutique hotel strategy. You guys have been killing it. Your growth has been explosive. And obviously, like your marketing is next level, man. Like uh, you've re you've really exceed so well in that stuff. So I want to, I want to peel back the curtain a little bit. I appreciate your brother and uh, feeling is mutual, dude. Excited to rip it on your pod. Uh, where can listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn more about the ADU stuff? Um, there's two ways. Uh, number one, you can go to investorshawn.com. I spell Sean, S-H-A-W-N, so that I kind of have all of my personal stuff there for you to reach. You can read my book on ADUs so you can understand more about it. And then you can also reach out to me on social media, Sean underscore D Martell. And uh, you can reach out to me there and happy to chat. There it is. He's Sean D. Martell. I'm Rich Summers listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you in the next one. Peace. Peace.